Nine games lost in a row and what do we do? Sack the goalie and put a girl on the forward line. It's a madhouse. Watch the game, Andy. Watch the game. She's good. She can move. It's not right. It's unnatural. It doesn't even look nice. It's modern, Andy. It's good. More than girls. More than boys. It's tremendous. Look. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rolaine. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select, and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 10, back to Cole's choice. What do you have for us? To celebrate the fact that we have hit double figures. Yes. Well, I guess it's not really... There's nothing particularly <laughs> that ties it to that. Oh, but, okay. You got me excited. R- no, we're not doing 10 with Bo Derrick. Dang it. We are doing Gregory's Girl today from 1981. Directed by Bill Forsyth, starring John Gordon Sinclair, Dee Hepburn, Claire Grogan, Jake Darcy, and Allison Forster. And why did you choose this film? I chose this one because it is my favorite teen comedy of all time. I discovered this in 1982 when I was 12 years old coming home from school one afternoon and turning on the movie channel at my grandmother's house and making what felt to me like a huge discovery. The tone of the film and the ideas in it really resonated with me for all sorts of reasons, but the short version is it's my favorite teen coming-of-age story that I've ever seen. The story itself revolves around Gregory, who is a super gangly, awkward teen that plays on the less-than-impressive school football team. Coach Phil Menzies holds open trials to inject new lifeblood into this terrible squad and fails to specify that he's looking for boys. Dorothy shows up, outplays everyone on the team, both taking Gregory's place on the team and stirring deep feelings in him. And the rest of the film, he grapples with these feelings of heretofore unknown depths for Dorothy, calling on his friends and his precocious little sister to help him navigate these choppy waters of love's first adolescent bloom. And the thing that's so great about it to me, which I might not have been able to articulate then, but I felt somehow, even at 12 years old, is that Bill Forsyth and you come to realize this even more as you watch other films in his catalog, always demonstrates such a genuine affection for his characters. No one is ever mistreated or bullied or abused. Everyone, it seems like, is always on such an even footing with each other. Gregory, as weird as he is, is not an outcast because in this little miniature society, there aren't really any outcasts. All the students are basically true peers, it seems like. Some a little smarter than others, but no one is ever taking advantage of anyone else, necessarily. All of these things were either things I thought or felt at the time that I have since figured out how to put into words as an adult. But the first time you saw it was when I chose it for this purpose and you had never seen it before. So as an adult, what is it like to come to this fully formed 
and mature. Well, I wish that I had seen this when it had come out. I wish that it was my first coming-of-age story because all the others pale in comparison now. And watching it at this point, I am so struck by its obvious charm, its simplicity, and it feels very much grounded in reflecting the age that the characters are. Mm -hmm. No one is, as you had mentioned, no one is a bully. There, there's no meanness for the sake of meanness, and no one is overly glib, which I really appreciate watching as an adult. Yes, it very definitely feels rooted in those actual ages. And from the very opening scene, yes, it starts like any average sex-crazed teen comedy might from that time period. There are obviously hormones in play. The opening scene begins with boys peeping in a nurse's window, potentially seeing the first naked woman they've ever seen. And you think you know what you're in for with this movie, but almost immediately... That gets turned on its head. If you pay attention to what the characters are actually saying, it shows you the path that the film is going to take. It's so much more gentle. It's so much more awkward. It, it's not hypersexualized. And one of the characters, Andy, clearly can't handle it. He's practically fainting. <laughs> the others are saying, it's okay, it's okay. And everyone is having a gentle good time and i think the film treats every character gently that's the best word that i can think of right now so i think we're seeing characters that are excited about these changes but don't know quite what to do about it and i enjoy that awkwardness that's not cringeworthy or mean mm -hmm. i enjoy that it feels so natural and so true young people growing up mm -hmm. well the character work in it is fantastic and it's full of little touches either in the writing or the direction i think there's something to be said for their performances but i think the real strong suit is Forsyth's hand at the wheel the writing and he wrote the script right yes and the direction of these kids exposes these small little bits of characterization that you didn't see in other films from the time period the thing that immediately comes to mind right off the bat there's a scene about five minutes in after we've seen what a terrible football team they are that Gregory and Andy are walking home and Andy tells Gregory that he's just going to hang around on the bridge for a little while because he likes to watch the traffic and that always struck me as this little vulnerable thing it's something that you wouldn't necessarily tell your friends as a teenager because they might think it's weird. They wouldn't understand that this small thing you find comfort in is necessary for you right now. But he so willingly and openly shares it with no self-consciousness, no worry what Gregory is going to think of him. He clearly demonstrates, I'm feeling a little down and this is going to make me feel a little bit better right now. And you didn't see things like that in teen movies ever, it felt like. Because in this film, everyone is allowed to be who they are. Right. Without terrible repercussions. Right. In Bill Forsyth's universes, there's room for everyone, it feels like. Another little piece of characterization that I really love is when Gregory absentmindedly leaves his electric toothbrush just running on the counter as he goes to school. And I would assume it just ran all day until it died. <laughs> Because, as teens are wont to do, 
He's not paying very close attention to everything, and he's moving very leisurely at his own speed, and is really only concerned with what exactly is in front of him at any given time. As soon as he puts the toothbrush down and begins to eat breakfast, and then as soon as he puts breakfast down and begins to dig for money in the family flower pot, each one of those things that has come before, it seems like, is immediately forgotten. And so he leaves for school, toothbrush running, and when he steps outside the door... Another little piece of this universe that I love so much is that he discovers little children that aren't quite school age yet everywhere. Not an adult in sight. They're crying and playing and he seems a little bewildered by it, but not so much so that he does anything about it and makes his way on to school. And so we're only maybe 10 minutes in or so at this point and we've already established this universe where everyone is welcome no one is necessarily weird, and the adults, if there are any, are kind of on a level playing field with the kids. There's a peer relationship that you see in a lot of the interactions that Gregory and his friends have with coaches, teachers, Gregory's father. What they don't tell you as a kid is that adults are often clueless and don't know much more than kids do. And while it doesn't state this in the film explicitly... The interaction between kids and teachers or coaches, or even the interactions between the teachers themselves in the lounge, for instance, demonstrate this equal footing and the idea that adults are often just overgrown kids themselves. And this familiarity and ease of interaction manifests itself in a ton of different little ways. You see, when Dorothy comes up during the tryout, and she's just casually leaning on the coach, handing him her tracksuit as she takes it off to get ready to go to practice. Which he hangs on to and takes care with. Right. There's Gregory's interaction with his driving instructor father that seems much more like siblings jabbing at each other a little bit. One maybe a little bit older and more responsible than the other. I think his father wants to let him know that he is being observed, but he is allowed room to grow and find himself. And you stole my line with the whole uh, overgrown boys uh, referring to the two teachers in the teacher's lounge. That's what I wrote, so thanks for stealing my thunder. Uh, you snooze, you lose. <laughs> I'll just start yelling. I'll just start jumping in. That attitude also comes up in other places, too, when you see Coach Phil Menzies. He sees Gregory coming down the hallway. <laughs> he and hides he, in a closet. He ducks into the closet until Gregory goes past. Little things like that demonstrate over and over again that the adults don't necessarily have any better handle on any of this than the kids. Everyone is equal. The most mature relationship in the whole movie is between Gregory's 10-year-old sister Madeline and her little paramour Richard. He's a gent. Richard is. is a gent. They are much more together than any of the people who are 16 years or older. And they're talking about the sibling. They're talking about Gregory and his trials and tribulations, much as you would sort of expect the parents to be doing. Right. Offering advice. Here's how I'm going to help him, all of that kind of stuff. And you had referred earlier to his sister Madeline as being precocious. And that's a word that I wrote down in my notes that the film doesn't feel precocious to me, though I think she is Normally in other films, that would be a reason for me to hate her, that it's not true to other children that I know, and it comes off as very false. Madeline doesn't. Madeline just feels like a smart kid to me. Yeah. Again, I think it's just a testament to Forsythe's skill as a writer 
and his insight as a director that he can take this trope of the precocious kid sister that we've seen dozens and dozens of times and find a way to make it effective and not cliched and do it so well that the influence of the character can be felt generations and generations later. For instance, in Bottle Rocket, Luke Wilson's character has a little sister who is practically a carbon copy of Madeline from this film. In this film, the difference is that Madeline and Gregory have a very warm relationship. Madeline is not a schemer to the detriment of Gregory, which is how so many of these other teen films use that character. But he has given her love all her life and has allowed her to grow, which is how every character is treated. Yes, she specifically says to him at one point, you were nice to me when other boys hated their sisters. Again, which was one more thing that made it resonate with me because my sister is 10 years younger than me and we fortunately have that gap between us that makes it so that we were never in direct competition for things. And I took her everywhere with me when I was that age. I'm sure, much to my friend's chagrin sometimes, they were wondering, why is this six-year-old, seven-year-old little girl hanging out with us all the time? Why do I have to go to Cole's sister's dance recital <laughs> when I could be doing something much cooler like playing D&D? Did Haley also have a Richard in her life? I don't think so. Dang it. You could have learned so much from him. I could have. At any rate, all of the minor characters in this thing get their moment, it feels like. Madeline is really well-developed. There's a great scene that follows soon after that in the home ec class in which Gregory first publicly declares his feelings for Dorothy to his friend Steve, who is much more concerned with his black market donut racket that <laughs> runs out of the boys' <laughs> bathroom. But Gregory asks Steve, have you ever been in love? And there's this great pause where Forsyth gives the actor playing Steve just enough room to communicate three or four things in that two-second beat, it feels like. He could be mulling over any number of things. Have I ever really been in love? What's the point of being in love? I'm only 16 years old. I would much rather make donuts. Who knows what he's thinking about, but he gives him just enough room, even though it's only a minor pause, to communicate practically an infinite number of things with that look that he gives to Gregory. I saw it as possibly also, oh, Gregory, you're only 16. What are you talking sure, about? Sure, it could be any number of things. Yes. That's what's so great about mm -hmm. it. We can impose upon that scene whatever it is that we carry within us, for instance, and how we feel on any given day. We could read it completely differently. It's a fantastic little bit of direction and acting that opens up a whole world of possibilities. And one of the other interesting parts to that scene is when Steve starts asking Gregory more questions about it, there's a little bit of a misunderstanding that he's talking about one of his fellow male soccer players. Oh, right. Gregory says it's someone on the football team. Yes. Yeah, sorry. Football, not soccer. My fault. <laughs> and so, but it, it, again, it is treated as that's okay. Right. Steve is completely unfazed by the notion that it could be Andy, which is who he asks about initially. Again, it's super progressive it felt like yeah. but again gently without pushing an agenda on anyone like i say repeatedly there's room for everyone it feels like steve's ribbing of 
Gregory at that point is completely gender neutral. There's no homophobia like there might have been in American films at the time. Or that there definitely was in American films at the time. There still is, I guess, (laughs) for that matter. It's that far ahead of its time that 30-odd years later, we still don't have a teen comedy that comes along very often that is as naturally and instinctively giving and progressive as this one was back in 1981. To me, it was an antidote to all of those John Hughes movies that everyone loved, that didn't speak to me at all. It predates those anyway. And the culture that it came out in was in the midst of everything being a teen sex farce. Losing it, Porky's, The Last American Virgin, where everything was, like you said before, so hypersexual that no one this side of Hugh Hefner could relate to that. And that is the thing that stood out to me the most about this film that sets it apart from those early 80s movies that you mentioned and then the mid and later 80s movies of John Hughes, for example, that this film is in no way asexual. No one is underdeveloped, but they're not hypersexual, as you mentioned. And there's a huge spectrum of experience in between, and it falls in that natural middle to me. That calls to mind... For me, the first scene in which we see our main characters dealing directly with each other and these feelings that are beginning to bubble up of possible exploration. There's the scene in the locker room with Gregory and Dorothy where they are comparing scars and wounds, similar to the scene in Jaws, Yes, but a lot more awkward (laughs) (laughs) and, again, hormonally charged, I thought. Do you read that the same way? Is it different for you? I I find there is an element of a sweeter romance than more of a sexual motive on Gregory's part. Gregory is so guileless mm-hmm. that I don't think he would be able to put those words to that or think, I am doing this in order to see right. Dorothy's body. There's no body. seduction. There's no seduction. <laughs> Gregory's not capable of that at this moment or with this girl. And... It reads as a more gently exciting moment to me. I can't imagine him. I can't imagine that his heart is racing and his. And you pound, don't think so? May, How I, wide his eyes are when he's he so gets close to her, to her knee. knee. You know, and I, I don't know if it's because I'm seeing this from the remove of so many decades. Let that, me tell you, as a 14-year-old boy. <laughs> at one point. At one point. The first time I ever got that close to a girl's knee who wasn't my sister or my mother, my heart was beating a little bit faster than you probably are giving Gregory credit for at this point. It was awfully exciting. Maybe now I just regard it as, I've said this previously, I see them as who they are at that age. Mm -hmm. And so I don't attach all of these motives that to me sort of came later or they weren't able to quite verbalize or understand at that point. So maybe I'm just too uh, forgiving or maybe I'm seeing this with more of a kind of maternal light even though I'm not a mother. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that you're just a big prude. (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) Normally not, but I don't know why I'm shying away from branding this movie as a sexual movie. There's nothing wrong with that. I think back again to these other films that we have, have mentioned or these other periods 
of teen comedies that we've talked about that are brazenly sexual and everyone in it just strikes me as a big creep Mm -hmm. and nobody in this movie is a creep. Yeah. And there is another little bit in that scene that I think is one more perfect instance of the sweetness and vulnerability and honesty that Forsyth lets his characters show without it being detrimental. And when the whole exchange about scars and bruises begins, Gregory says to her with no self-consciousness at all, I bruise like a peach. Yes. And I cannot think of another instance in cinema, especially from that era, in which a 16-year-old boy exhibits such unvarnished vulnerability to the object of his affections whom he is trying to impress. And Gregory is trying to impress her, but he doesn't really know how to even do that. He's so guileless again that he only knows to tell the truth. So he starts to agree with her when she's talking about how great Italy is and the language. And he uses the words that he knows and he has to admit those are the only two Italian words (laughs) that I know. And so he's not trying to build himself up to be this person who he is not. That's true. No, he never... He never lies no. that I can recall. Can you think of an instance which, in which he outright does not tell the truth? I can think of a couple of instances where he takes a while to get there. For mm-hmm. example, on the bridge with Andy when he's trying to tell him that uh, they're both probably going to be cut. But right. he makes it into a little bit more of uh, maybe I'll, I'll be the one that gets right. cut or not. Or a I'm little, saving you. A little self-aggrandizing. A little self-aggrandizing. But he, in, he inevitably gets there. Right. And back to the locker room scene. Another thing that I like so much about it is that Dorothy, again, is a fully fleshed out character for me, just like all of these other characters. And she is a very serious person. And that comes out in this scene. She is not uh, a sex pot, as women might typically be portrayed. She has a single-minded purpose, which is to succeed at football and to be taken seriously doing it. And so she's having a conversation with a fellow teammate in the spirit of we are equals. Mm -hmm. So yes, Dorothy is probably the most serious-minded and driven, like you said, character in the whole film. At this point, though... Gregory thinks he's really serious. He is in love, and he's going to do everything that he can to make that happen. Right. There's a great point in the scene shortly after that locker room scene where he's with Steve again, and Steve is essentially telling him, look, you just have to do something. Quit talking about it. Yes. If you're serious, do something. And he refers to Dorothy as unattainable, and Gregory reacts really strongly to that and tells him... Don't characterize it this way. Don't say these things like unattainable. This is love. And he is completely insistent that this is true love. This is definitely what it is. Mm -hmm. Which, in retrospect, really serves to underscore how mercurial teenage romance can be when you see whom he ends up with and how he ends up with her. So Gregory is building himself up to this point where he's finally going to ask Dorothy out. Finally, after however many days have gone by, maybe (laughs) two or three, when he's seen her and decided that he loves her. So he's talked with his friends. He's talked with his sister. He has built himself up to this point where he asks her out after they have been practicing football over lunch. And he still can't quite close the deal or realize that he's closed the deal. He asks her out. She says, sure. Right away. 
no problem. And he has to ask her another question and another question and another question. And we're watching it feeling, oh, Gregory, just stop. You, you've got the date scheduled. But they do. They decide they're going to meet that evening in the plaza. And Gregory shows up, but no Dorothy. And this is where the resilience of the teenage heart <laughs> starts to come into play because Dorothy stands him up. Carol meets him there instead, who takes him and hands him off to Margot. Margot takes him and hands him off to Susan. As it turns out, this was a huge ploy on all of their parts to put Susan and Gregory together because she has very subtly, and when you go back and watch, you see her paying yes. attention to him in those ways. She has very subtly been demonstrating this attraction to him, asking little questions about him, fixing on him during home ec class, and Steve actually has to take her and shoo her away, grab her by of. the shoulder after she has made up the pretense of coming over to ask about pastry dough. So this has been her plan in some other part of the movie that we haven't been seeing all along, much the way, say, for example, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead is the part of Hamlet that you don't see. I would really like to see Susan's story now at this point and see all of the planning and positioning that she has been doing with these chess pieces in the meantime to put herself in the position where she and Gregory now ultimately are the ones on the date. Because I think back to that one very small scene that's no dialogue. We just see Susan and Dorothy behind the closed door in the right. classroom. And now I watch it and I think she's putting it together somehow. And no one gets hurt mm -hmm. over the course of this. Dorothy doesn't set out to hurt Gregory. Susan says that women help each other. That's how they got to this point. That they've all sort of been working together to help her get to Gregory as Gregory's been trying to build himself up to get to the unattainable Dorothy and doesn't realize there's a possibly more attainable person standing by. Not just more attainable, but and I guess this all comes down to taste, but mm -hmm. I like Susan a lot better anyway. I like her beret very much. <laughs> but like I mentioned, the resilience of the teenage heart, even though as he's being handed like a baton from yes. one to the next to the next to the next. And there are subtle indications that he may have anxiety and fear that he is being made a fool of, potentially. Yes. He still goes with it anyway because Gregory ultimately is very relaxed about everything, which is one of the most endearing things about him. He doesn't push. And the girls do, at every moment, try to reassure him and let him know it's going right. to be okay. So you get to the point where he and Susan are on the date and things are going extremely well. And he's teaching her how to dance while lying down and telling her about gravity and how in other instances, when he's told people about how gravity works, they panic and they fall off the earth. Yes. She's hanging on. Because she has, and crucially to the scene, she finishes his sentence by saying natural ability. Yes. And it's the place that clicks where you realize what a joy it is to be with someone who is on your wavelength. And I had said a moment ago that possibly she's more attainable and that's not that's definitely not right because they've taken the time in this walk in the park to actually talk to each other mm -hmm. and get to know each other. So they realize we do have pieces that fit together. It's not just a happenstance or you're the most available person right. I can get to. This is actually working. Right. That joke that he told Dorothy 
when Dorothy asked him to help with some football practice because she wanted to try shots at different angles where he said, I'll bring my compass. (laughs) Susan would have thought that joke was great. Whereas with Dorothy, it fell completely flat. And Susan is the person that appreciates that part of Gregory. And the dancing in the grass is a really charming moment that feels like uh, purely romantic for the sake of romance. And it's a nice little moment together. And that date scene ends with just one more example of how equal and progressive the movie feels and felt to me at the time in which Susan walks Gregory home. Mm-hmm. And at first... He is surprised, more pleased than surprised by the idea of switching that role with her. And then just offers, you do this for me, I'll return the favor sometime. And again, equal footing, people are peers. No one is superior to another based on gender role, based on social hierarchy, based on any of these ridiculous reasons that get in the way of romance all the time. Which then leads us to Gregory's final scene in the movie, where he's telling his little sister Madeline about how the date went. I think it's really telling that Gregory doesn't say now, I'm in love with Susan, that that he hasn't just transferred all of that onto her. He's grown up a little bit. He's had this really important experience. And he's telling Madeline about this, and Madeline finishes with, who's going to be Gregory's girl? And he tells her that she is. And I always picture... Haley in that scene where they're having that final conversation together as brother and sister and then she covers his face with a pillow and that little last tiny almost blink and you miss it touch of her taking the flower out of his hand as kind of a trophy or a souvenir of that moment implying a lot of things for me that she would take care of it better than he would he she's saving (laughs) it for him perhaps preserving that moment Mm -hmm. for him because she is obviously much better equipped and in a more clear state of mind to preserve these things for him. And also because I think she wants to remember it. She wants a token of that moment where he said something that meant so much to her. I took it as there's not just one Gregory's girl. There are at least three that we've seen so far, and that's okay. It very much felt to me like there was only the one. Just the one. And again, this is one of those instances where you bring your own thing to the movie and you put your reading onto the blank slate. To me, having a little sister like that that I doted on, I very much related to the notion that, sure, there's that is the most important girl to me, the, the most important girl I know. So that part rang very true for me at 12 years old when I just had a tiny baby sister. I couldn't think of any person that could possibly be more important than this chubby two-year-old baby (laughs) that I took with me everywhere, every chance I got. And as Gregory has grown up a little bit at this point, I think back to a couple of scenes previously when Madeline has said, in reference to something else, but it makes so much sense, which is that the nicest part is just before you taste it. And I read that as this romance that he doesn't has that he hasn't had. And now at this point, he's had this wonderful interlude with Susan. He's come out of the other end. And now he, I think, knows that's not the nicest part. The nicest part is not before the discovery. It's after the discovery. It's actually having this thing take place. It's even better than ginger beer with lime juice and ice cream. <laughs> it is. Don't mix it. <laughs> 
We've now come to the very end of the film, and Charlie and Andy, Charlie is the character who's not said a word up until this point, they are hitchhiking to Caracas. <laughs> That's Andy's idea, because there are more women there than men. Eight to one. It's going to be the best possible scenario for him. And they're hitchhiking, and it's not happening, and Andy's upset and starting to melt down a little bit, and Charlie reassures him and says one of the most important lines of the film, which is, I think everything's going to be all right. I think if you take that line in conjunction with the line you just mentioned about Madeline saying... The nicest part is just before you taste it. Right. Those two ideas in tandem basically make the thesis statement for this entire movie and set up a really pleasant world that I'd like to live in just outside of Glasgow. And I want to live in Glasgow. Now, I wanted to live there, well, I guess more accurately, 20 miles outside of Glasgow. (laughs) Yes. It seemed like such a great place to be, based solely on my experience with this movie at 12 years old. The movie, to expand on why it was so significant to me at the time, even at 12, I felt this vague, or even earlier than 12 probably, but at 12 when I discovered this film, I had this vague sense of dissatisfaction with all of the usual offerings, the films I mentioned before, the things I was supposed to like, and the the ones that followed shortly after this, like all of the John Hughes films, it was the first time that I recall really connecting to something like this because it was so different from all of those things. It took something from thousands of miles away, across an ocean, literally, for me to feel at home. And it, that really resonated with me, and still does to this day, I guess the thing that really cemented the whole thing for me was the very next day at school. The lessons that I had just learned from the film seemed to be immediately put into practice because I was talking about this movie at recess. As you do. Sure. I was talking about... (laughs) Gregory's Girl. Gregory's Girl at recess in Apache, Oklahoma in 1982, as you do. And my friend Gordon, whom would have never watched this sort of thing, I thought at the time, had seen it too. We were sitting in separate houses across town from each other, both watching this thing, and it was really not his thing. It really was something I wouldn't imagine that he would have gravitated to. And we were sitting talking about how much we both loved it and how different it was from anything that we'd ever seen. It was just a nice little lesson to me, much like the film is trying to remind us that you're not alone out there and it's going to be all right. If you just keep sticking to what you do, be honest and be true to yourself, wherever you land is going to be fine. But like I said, it seemed like such an antidote to all of those other things that just made no sense to me. They weren't characters that I knew or understood or felt anything for. (laughs) Some of the characters in a couple of the Savage Steve Holland movies... I loved, and I will not apologize for that to this day. But all of that John Hughes stuff just never made a dent with me. And as I mentioned, I didn't see this movie when it first came out. I've only now seen it this year as an adult. And so I only had the John Hughes movies to start with. Mm -hmm. And I really do think John Hughes watched this movie very (laughs) closely. There are so many specific 
elements that he has taken out completely and put into his other films. And the context change is pretty jarring when you watch Mm -hmm. those in comparison. There are things like the two little boys who keep popping up. Right. And the attempted pole vaulting sight gag (laughs) is fully in 16 Candles. And so many other character elements that he has then, I can't think of another way to say it other than sort of Americanized. And I, I almost take that to mean dumbed down. Oh, I definitely take point. it to mean that in this case. And sound effects that he's put in. And so you take all of that garbage out and you have the elements that are so beautiful in this movie that make so much sense across these years. And then I look at a moment in this film, Gregory's Girl, that I don't think you would ever see in the John Hughes films or their ilk, which is this sort of, again, blink and you miss it moment of the underlying elements of A Midsummer Night's Dream that repeat throughout the Mm -hmm. film. It starts with the fun scene where Andy is loudly exclaiming through one of the monologues in that play and the Billy the window washer pops up and he's the rude mechanical at the time that Andy's talking about rude mechanicals and then Susan is reading the play across town from Gregory as Gregory is howling or meowing at the moon whatever he's doing she is reading this play and then we have the switch of the lovers that happens that she has kind of orchestrated Mm -hmm. And so these just fun little beautiful things that might not appeal to everybody definitely appealed to me. I found Shakespeare when I was 12. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to me. I got to see my very first live play ever, which was The Taming of the Shrew. And if I had seen this movie then, I I keep wondering how how much of a change that might have instilled in me. It made a huge difference to me is all I can tell you. It's... It was my favorite then. It's still my favorite now. I can't imagine it will ever be unseated as the reigning king of teen coming-of-age stories. Hopefully there will be many candidates. I hope people will make these movies, but it's it's a one-of-a-kind. I just want people to watch Gregory's Girl. Yeah. I don't need them to make anything else. <laughs> okay. Which brings us to recommendations. My recommendation is also another wonderful coming-of-age story. It has a different tone, but I love it and have loved it since I saw it as a very young person. And that is 1985's My Life as a Dog by Lassie Hostrom. I was going to bring that up when you were talking about the honest and nearly flawless depiction of adolescent sexuality. Yes. Because that is another one that treats that subject so perfectly. I'm sorry, go ahead. You're silly by thunder. I, so I'm what Cole said. I'm glad I didn't mention it. <laughs> yes. Because I would have ruined your recommendation. It's the first one that came to me, as as I had said, and as you just echoed, that it feels so natural to the age of the characters. Mm-hmm. And I really appreciate it. It's a beautiful movie. I hope everybody watches it. That's a great choice. Thank you. My recommendation is that people watch more Bill Forsyth. Ah, So I'm going to recommend my second favorite movie of his, Comfort and Joy. It's the film he made in 1984, starring Bill Patterson and, once again, Claire Grogan, who played Susan in this film. It is about a Glasgow radio personality whose life is upended suddenly with his girlfriend leaving him, his kleptomaniac girlfriend, and the subsequent circumstances that get him involved in a turf war between two 
Glaswegian ice cream vendors. But it's completely full of all of those touches that I value Bill Forsyth for so much. The characters are charming and decent and handled with a complete affection by the director. It's really funny and it's appropriate to this time of year because it has a slightly Christmas theme. So if you're looking for an offbeat Christmas movie, track down the VHS copy (laughs) of Comfort and Joy because it doesn't exist in Region 1 DVD, unfortunately. But it is a fantastic film, and I encourage people to see as much Bill Forsyth as they can, especially this run of movies he made, Gregory's Girl, Local Hero, and Comfort and Joy. And Local Hero is my first introduction to Bill Forsyth, Um, hearing about that movie and then realizing there were others, Mm -hmm. too. So specifically, Comfort and Joy is my recommendation this time. Well, I was going to say I can't wait to watch it, but I guess it's more like I can't wait until the time when I will be able to watch it. Right. (laughs) (laughs) and that brings us to the end of another episode if you would like to get in touch with us you can email us at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com we're on facebook you can just search for magic lantern podcast and that will get you there we're on twitter at lantern underscore cast we have a website, magiclanternpodcast.com, where you can find all of our episodes, including show notes with supplemental material. And I would like to say thanks this time around to some more people who left reviews and or tweeted about the show. Cheryl Jones left us a really nice review on iTunes, and Cheryl does a fantastic show called Movies Made Me. If you like our show, I think you would like her show as well. She has on a variety of guests from all walks of life in which they discuss the five movies that influence their lives and the three other influences in their lives that are important to them. It's a really nice, wide-ranging conversation about how cinema and life intersect. Mark Herney at Criterion Close-Up tweeted about our Mahanagar show this week, and we really appreciate that. Thanks, Mark. And Craig Eastman from Fuds on Film also tweeted about the show and passed it along to people that follow him. So we certainly appreciate that. Once again, the podcast community out there has been super supportive to us, and we really appreciate it. If you would like to leave us an iTunes review, we would certainly appreciate it anytime you want to go to the trouble. Anytime you'd like to get in contact with us, just reach out. We're happy to hear from you. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. Podcast.